Welcome to Give and Take. It's the podcast where yours truly, Scott Jones, talks with authors, artists, activists, theologians, philosophers, political pundits, scholars, and a host of others about their work and the lens through which they experience life. I engage my guests in a free-flowing conversation that's entertaining, unexpected, occasionally bizarre, and hopefully enlightening above all. Thanks for listening to this episode of Give and Take. Eli Wiesel is best known as the author of Night, survivor of Auschwitz, and a powerful, enduring voice of the Holocaust. A recipient of the Nobel Peace Prize, he was a hero of human rights, beloved professor, and author of more than 50 books. Among his accomplishments, Wiesel co-founded Moment Magazine with Leonard Fine in 1975 to be a place of conversation for America's Jews. For editor-in-chief Nadine Epstein, he became a mentor and friend after she took over the magazine in 2004. In this striking new volume, Eli Wiesel, An Extraordinary Life and Legacy, Epstein shares her memories of Wiesel and brings together 36 reflections from friends, colleagues, and others who knew him, including his son, Elisha Wiesel, actor Ben Kingsley, and Oprah Winfrey. The foreword is by the world-famous British rabbi Jonathan Sachs, and the afterword is by Ted Koppel. It's an extraordinary volume, and we had a great conversation about it. I give you the editor of Eli Wiesel, An Extraordinary Life and Legacy, Nadine Epstein. Nadine, welcome to the podcast. Great. Thank you. Glad to be here. You are editor-in-chief at Moment Magazine, which is some, which is a magazine that Elie Wiesel started, and you recently published a book. You know, the title is Elie Wiesel: An Extraordinary Life and Legacy, and it's a beautiful book. And it's, I mean, it's, it's kind of almost looks like a coffee table book, you know, and it's got tons of beautiful pictures and other things, and some really uh, substantive reflections from a cosmopolitan cast of, of characters who his life touched in some way. Uh, what's, what was the inspiration for the book? Like, why the book and why now? Because it's not, it's not like this is the only book that's ever been written about this extraordinary man. Well, I had known Ellie for about 13, 14 years before he died. And when he died, first of all, I went to his funeral and then I came out afterwards and thought, well, what can I do? And I always take a lot of Ubers and Lyfts and I, Always, I I love talking. I find out so much about the world from talking to people who are drivers. And sometimes I mention what I do, and I mention Ellie, and I realize that there are so many people who don't know who he is. And then there are even so many people who are, you know, very educated and who are in, or even in the Jewish world, who don't know who he is, or they kind of know who he is. They know his name. They know he wrote perhaps the book Night, but they don't really have a sense of who he is. And, you know, he was a, a complex man who, as I've learned in the process of doing this book, had far more legacies than I would, you know, that I understood when, when he was alive. Yeah, it, it's interesting that you say that because I grew up like many Gen Xers and I'm sure millennials reading the night as required reading right in high school and come up came up in a generation that where the Holocaust was not ignored generally and really framed a lot of the way we looked at, at the 20th century. But as you point out in the book, that was not always the case. And you have a reflection 
in the book by Patrick Dubois, who is a Catholic priest, and he talks about worrying that the Holocaust in general and Elie Wiesel specifically will be uh, will be forgotten. And he talks to uh, teenagers and whatnot that, that really don't have a sense of this crater in 20th century human history. I mean, it, it's that's it, it, remarkable. That, that and it sounds like that's been your experience as well. That that there are people that are forgetting. You know, I think that it's fabulous that that teenagers read the book Night. And in the book, we actually talk to some of them. and But not all teenagers read the book night. It depends on what school you go to. It depends on what house you grow up in. depends on your parents. Um, not all teenagers, not all kids read the diary of Anne Frank. I mean, there's this is not something that everyone really knows about, even though it may seem to us that in our own little bubbles, they do. But now we're experiencing really for the first time that that generation that lived through the Holocaust is passing away. It's mostly gone. And how do we continue to keep this in our, our live memory? How do we continue to have the Holocaust be a frame? Because that kind of evil is an incredibly important frame for everything we do. I mean, we need, we need to never experience that depth of evil. And it's somehow I feel like it's, that's we need that we need that to have you know in order to be good citizens in order to be gracious and kind to other people we need that enabled in order to not for, I mean can't forget yeah and this is you know what Hannah Arendt calls right in her work the the banality of evil that that if you know Elie Wiesel said that if you the opposite of love isn't hate, it's indifference. And it's this is where evil in its banal sense does the best work, right? When people just, uh, nobody wakes up thinking, oh my gosh, we're being a part of a totalitarian genocide today. All right, let's get to work. It's it's one compromise after another, one deadening awareness after another, that that all of a sudden the, it, things crop up all around you, right? From, from the indifference and the non-remembering. Yes, we are so deadened. We have so much information coming at us in the world and we are so in some ways deadened and we we can't let that happen and you know we want our children we want our teenagers to read this book and we as adults need to remember as well and i mean for me the book is really important because you see him through so many eyes and you know i was friends with him for you know i guess around 13 14 years since i took over the magazine and I've learned so much about him. For example, he he was he did far more than, you know, represent Holocaust survivors. He was incredibly important by the way in when he, you know, going to the Soviet Union. Natan Sharansky talks about this in the book and he sees what's happening to the Jews in the Soviet Union and he comes and he writes a book called The Jews of Silence and he comes back to the United States and that book helps mobilize the American Jewish community. Yeah, yeah, he comes away with a with a with a with a realization in that in that time, which it's written down in the book, where he thought these are it's remarkable that under the totalitarian communist reality, they still really wanted to be Jews and wanted Jewish connection. Whereas you realized in America, you, you have this sort of there's an elective element to it, and and and, and there's not you know that that under 
you know, the, the, it's not, you know, the it, totalitarianism doesn't crush the Jewish spirit. It, it sometimes it's opulence and options that, that kind of, that make, they make it harder to, to remember your identity. Well, I think in the Soviet Union, you really had no choice but to be a Jew, whether or not what many of the Jews in the Soviet Union knew nothing about Judaism. They were, you know, far away from learning about Judaism. They didn't have the opportunities to learn about Judaism, but there was built-in anti-Semitism. And that, no matter what they did, they weren't allowed to go to certain schools. They weren't allowed to be in certain professions. And they certainly weren't allowed to leave. And <laughs> um, uh, No one was, it was very hard for anyone to leave. Um, but, you know, I think, again, what we're seeing now is that the resurgence of anti-Semitism in the United States, which is a horrifying, you know, phenomena, is, as has we recently did a at the magazine, a whole symposium where we talked to millennial Jews, young Jews, and many of them have been completely, you know, shocked by anti-Semitism, which has helped them to, you know, really ended up making them identify more as Jews than they had before. So I think that, you know, sadly, we may be going through some of that same process. Yeah, I, I had a someone on the podcast uh, a couple of months ago, a rabbi, Evan Moffick, who just wrote a book about anti-Semitism. And, you know, he's about 40 years old. And he said, you know, like, I just grew up growing up in Houston and, you know, being educated in California, I think. It was, or He said, you know, I didn't, I just didn't see much anti-Semitism like we see, we're seeing this resurgence in. Like, this is really, I mean, the, the past couple decades yeah. in, in the United States, I mean, of course, not that there's not racism, anti-Semitism, but it's been a, 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 relatively a golden age for Jews. It's been on the fringes. It was there's yeah. been anti-Semitism on the fringes for you know always. It never went away. In 2014, at the magazine, we did a symposium on anti-Semitism, and we talked to all the scholars that are you know people who are thinking about anti-Semitism in Europe, in the United States, and in Israel, and other places in the world. And pretty much the takeaway was that anti-Semitism had become a problem again in Europe. But in the United States, it was it was not something that we had to be concerned about. The difference between 2014 and 2016 is one that I never could have imagined because like you and like I grew up in the you know, United States, I ran into very small bubbles of anti-Semitism. Um, you know, people who use language that kind of took me back, like, drew me down. Um, I covered, uh, you know, right, kind of far right groups as a reporter, you know, and occasionally I would run into to, to anti-Semitism. But it was not at all in the mainstream. It didn't, to, it didn't affect the trajectory of my life, where now it's changed so dramatically in those two years. Yeah, I, I wonder, too, one of the things that, Many of the contributors in in this book talk about is that Elie Wiesel is a person that was not just he was at the same time deeply Jewish and and also at the same time deeply cosmopolitan and and advocated for other suffering people was criticized because he wrote the night in French not in Hebrew and, and you know had had this kind of uh, cosmopolitan you know was criticized for not taking up residence in Israel and he was always this person who was living in between worlds and and, and crossing boundaries I wonder you know uh, it, this cosmopolitan world in which we live is not natural right I mean for most of human evolution we're tribal 
right? <laughs> and, and, you know, Judaism and the Enlightenment both are forces that sort of speak to the broad universal nature of humanity. I wonder, is some of the resurgent anti-Semitism, this sort of fear of cosmopolitanism and, and some of the sort of connected world in which we live, and it's something that of course. Giselle seemed to love. And, and, and I of think it's anxiety about that causing some of this. I mean, what is globalism? Globalism is cosmopolitanism on a, on a larger scale. Cosmopolitanism is, cosmopolitanism is, you know, people who lived in cities. There were always difference between people who lived in the cities and people who didn't, who lived beyond the cities, beyond the city walls. Um, and we are experiencing that in the United States right now. It's, it's not so much rural versus city. It's really cosmopolitan, cosmopolitanism, um, versus, you know, uh, you know, the urban world. So yes, absolutely. Um, and you know, and I think Ellie was you true. He, he was someone who was also, as you said, universalist and particularist. He cared a lot about what was happening in the Jewish world, but he cared greatly about what was happening beyond all suffering was important. Suffering the Holocaust was unique and perhaps the descent into evil that it was, that blatant evilness of it. But we had to recognize, we have to see, we have to combat suffering of all kinds. I, I, I'm, I'm so, I'm struck by the, the fact that I did not know this, uh, you know, until I read the book, but that this figure, <laughs> this figure who is Known in many ways, you know, you you can't disassociate his name with the memory of the Holocaust, and and being someone who's who told its story, he refused to talk about it until the fifties, and and until uh, Nobel laureate Francois Mauriac convinced him to. And, and you have this powerful phrase that Mauriac later said that Ellie's gaze reminded him of Lazarus risen from the dead, yet still held captive in the somber region into which he had strayed, stumbling over desecrated corpses. And that, I mean, I I was so struck by that, that it took took a while for him to be able to tell the story. So, um, very much so. I mean, it actually took a lot of people time to tell the story. You know, people did not speak about what happened outside their families for a few decades. When I was growing up, people still didn't talk about the Holocaust. And I think a lot of the Holocaust survivors felt cut off and they, you know, they stayed together. They spoke with one another, but there wasn't, um, there was certainly not a larger dialogue about the Holocaust. Um, and Ellie was very instrumental, I think, in helping others to tell their stories. As you'll see, I mean, he tells his story. And if you look at the picture, so originally, you know, I hadn't planned on having so many photos. I thought we would just have a photo on the cover. But there were so many amazing photos of Ellie. And you can, the, his face. Tells uh, each facial expression, uh, you can, you can yes. spend. Let me tell you. You can spend so long with these photos because his, his, his expressions face, are, are amazing. Let me tell you, his face tells the story. You can see he's a very haunted young man. There's no, he's not smiling. He's struggling. And you can see the despair. And as he gets older, you see he learns how to go transcend that and go beyond that. And he finds a life and he, I I believe, you know, he wasn't even planning on having children at, you know, he finds, you can see his happiness with his son and his family. You can see how he transforms just by looking at the images. And that's why there's over 100 photos in the book, because the photos tell a story. They're not just a you know, a trivial add-on. Um, yeah, yeah, and it's interesting to see his face evolve. Yes, 
with each and and the the expression is still deep but the depth is characterized in different ways as age weighs on his face it's really arresting Mm-hmm. I want to take a brief moment to ask you a quick question. Do you like this podcast? Do you enjoy it? Do you look forward to listening to it while you do a morning, afternoon, or evening routine, or while you're exercising, or while you're caught frustrated in traffic? Do you tune into it because of the conversations you find here? If the answer to the aforementioned questions is yes, or even just a solid maybe, would you do something for me? Would you consider becoming a Patreon sponsor of the podcast for just five bucks a month or more? It's for a good cause. You can help this podcast and one of the many others I do keep going. And you can help launch several other podcast projects I've got in the works. So I invite you to be a patron through Patreon of this, which I think is an art form you're enjoying and will continue to enjoy. Again, any contribution is welcome, but for five bucks a month, you will get a shout out on the thank you roll call, which begins right now. Thank you, David Babico, Ken Skillman, Ellis Brazil, David Zoll, Sari Graham, Peter Steigerwald, Jennifer Spate, Ben DeHart, Joel Wentz, Jordan DeMice, Samantha Conower, Simone Garabedian, David Norling, Charlotte Donlin, Larry Rule, Stephen Lipless, John Schneider, Ben Crosby, Liam O'Brien, Jim Crest, Stephen Rowe, Jordan Morseberger, Josh Redder, Jody Stevenson, Andrew Stravitz, Glenn Stalker, Greg Johnson, and Kai Winkhenig. If you want to join these patrons through Patreon, just go to patreon.com forward slash Scott Kent Jones. Thanks again for listening, and now back to the show. I was struck by something uh, that is on his gravestone. Uh, the, his, on his gravestone are the words, I have learned two lessons in my life. First, there are no sufficient literary, psychological, or ex- historical answers to human tragedy, only moral ones. And the second, as ju- just as despair can come to one another only from other human beings, hope too can be given to one only by other human beings. I think that the in, in intellectual circles and just in popular circles, circles, the second wouldn't be controversial. But that first, in so many intellectual circles, the idea that there is mo- there are moral answers to tragedy uh, that that seems so unfashionable in intellectual circles that we can have historical answers or psychological ones, but but morality often becomes something that is increasingly relative. And it is in the realm of sort of maybe theology or ideology or something. And, 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 and here, I mean, this seems like a really bold statement that, that is not currently in fashion in some circles. Well, I, I actually talked to him about this at one time because one of the things that, you know, you, you, you read that, I, that I, I found with Ellie is that he had a moral authority. He had this moral gravitas that many people don't have. And he got it through experiencing utter evil and by suffering. And he 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 earned his moral gravity and he kept his moral gravity throughout his life. And I think it's hard. I felt when I first went to see him, I often felt very shy. I felt like, and he and I discussed because he was very encouraging me and he wanted me to write books. Not This book we never talked about. I'm working on other books. and And I often said to him, I don't feel like I have the same kind of voice, moral voice that you have. And he would say, well, we each have our own moral voice and you have to find your own voice. And it's true. We all have within us, I think, this sense of a moral compass. His was incredibly powerful. And 
also I think more easily respected because one of the one of the reasons his voice could be heard is because we knew he had gone through what he had gone through. And so I I think that by reading and learning about people who have this moral authority and moral vision, we ourselves become and learn what that means. It was always hard for me to imagine you I grew up in the world of relativity as you mentioned that as you did. And and there are there are values to that, but somewhere in our our great understanding of the world as individuals, we need to have room for both, and we we need the grounding of of morality. And morality is not just a simple thing, you know. And morality, I think, you know, we often grow up in the world as black and white. The world is not black and white, but morality helps us to have a better understanding of of the nuances as well. Joseph Berger, his biographer, says this, which you quote in in the book. His furrowed, handsome face had a haunted, distracted look as if he spoke to the heavens. And yet those who knew him remark on how fundamentally down to earth he was. I mean, that's that's a very interesting picture of a man who had all this gravitas uh, and did speak transcendently to many people. And yet, I mean, you knew him well. I mean, do you think that resonates that he was a very earthy guy at, 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 at base level? I don't know about earthy. I mean, he was, in my experience, you know, in my personal experience, he was very accessible and very, uh, gracious and um but he lived you know by the time i knew him he lived in a world of you know major political leaders and kings and presidents um as well although when i was with him i i i felt like all his attention was on me so that was that was something very special um but also if you read ted koppel who's the the former the, the broadcaster who used to be the head of nightline ted and Ellie were very close friends and he talks about how he, you know, he, he picks up Ellie one day to go to a retreat, a nightline retreat. He picks him up at the airport, at an airport and he puts Ellie in the car and he starts driving and he stops for gas and he gets out and he puts the gas in the car, he gets back in and Ellie looks at him and says, how do you know how to do that? <laughs> What did he do when he had to get gas? He didn't get gas. So um, he wasn't a man who was, you know, pumping gas. He was a very, you know, he had, I think he, you know, remember he spent his sort of formative years as a young man in France and in, in Paris. This was, he was not, you know, he was very cosmopolitan. He did not, you know, go out and wash his car. As far as I know, he didn't put gas in his car. He didn't, I don't think he didn't drive. Uh, Ted also tells a story about how he gets Ellie on a bicycle and then Ellie falls and, <laughs> and then Ellie and Ted is standing there going, Oh my gosh, I've, I've just, you know, injured the Nobel prize peace winner. And Ellie got up and went on, but I'm just saying that he wasn't, um, he wasn't earthy in that sense. You know, he wasn't out there tilling the fields, um, and he wasn't fixing his car, um, but he was, I think, very accessible. And he also had um, a very uh, mischievous kind of uh, twinkle in his eye, which I, I really enjoyed. He didn't tell jokes, at least not to me. And again, I only have my own experience, but I, there was this mischievous twinkle and it was, it was easy to talk to him for me. Once I, I got over, uh, by the way, being completely um, 
kind of shy, so shy in his presence. Yeah. How did you get over that? I mean, when, how did, how long did it take and how did you get over it? Well, the first time I met him, I had just taken over the magazine and I took the train up from Washington, D.C. to Boston. And he was teaching at Boston University. And I was ushered into his beautiful wood paneled office, which was filled with books. And he jumped up from behind his desk and I sat, I said hi. And he sat, we sat down on a couch and he started to talk. And I couldn't understand a single word he said. Because first of all, he spoke so softly. And second of all, he had such a thick accent. And so I tra- I said, could you say that again? Could you say that again? And I noticed that he never said it again. He just kept talking. So basically, I had to adjust. I had to figure out what he was saying. And I always felt a little uncomfortable. It took a while for me to get used to his voice. Um, meanwhile, as my heart was beating so fast, it was also hard for me to understand what he was saying. So... Um, it took a while for us to, for me to be able to become friends with him and just talk to him like he was a, a regular person. And, um, and it took a while for me to be able to really decipher everything that he was always saying. Um, and, and then, you know, and I feel like we got there and we were having these, we had some wonderful talks and, you know, and then he was gone. So in a way, I feel like the book was a continuation of those talks and that personally, like there were so many things like when you're with somebody and you're friends with somebody, you know, some things about them, but you really don't know the whole picture of them. You don't really know, you know, how they're viewed in the world. You don't know what other people know about them, how other people communicate with them, what other people perceive. So it was a fascinating task in a way um, to talk to all these other people to have a much wider grasp of who he was and so I feel like my relationship with him has actually been able to continue uh, by the process of doing this book and every time I speak about the book people come up to me who have known him in some way or another I, I met a man who had been his bunkmate in Auschwitz oh wow who three or four or five boys shared a bunk and he was one of them People have all sorts of stories. So now since I've done the book, I, I could do another book because there's so many more stories that I know, which I didn't know of. So I, it's like this, it's, it's a, it is a continuation of, I hope, my friendship with Ellie. Did you two ever like argue? No, you know, I was, I, I did not argue with him. Um, I was not his student. I, I actually, we talked a lot about writing. Um, you know, he wasn't in my in my experience. He wasn't argumentative kind of person. Um, he was an incredibly gracious person, and and I and I'd like to say that we have something that we we can learn from him because you know he wasn't also an ideologue. He wasn't um, a black and white kind of person. He didn't perceive the world as you know as you said. He was a cosmopolitan person. Yeah. Somebody um, says somebody says in there that it notes that he never lived in Israel, and some Israelis criticize him for that. And they noted he just wouldn't have been well suited for Israeli politics the way it is. You know, because he's such a nuanced kind of person. Because it, it often it, it was probably more uh, confrontational, black and white than than his disposition. It seemed. Well, I think that's a, you said a lot of things there to unpack. But first of all. Um, about Israel, I think he early on decided that he he wanted to live 
in the United States. And so he never publicly really criticized Israel uh, because he felt like he didn't live in Israel. And I think he was criticized by people on some people for not living in Israel and other people for being too pro-Israel. But the larger point is that he, I think he managed to generally throughout most of his life transcend polarization. And, you know, he wasn't an ideologue. Um, if we could get that legacy alone yeah. in this moment, right? That'd be, because it seems that, that that is such a small space that occupied in our current, current cultural conversation. Right? I mean, and it's not uh, high culture, low culture, blue collar, white collar, edu- formally educated, less formally educated. It seems like everyone's polarized. Uh, it, the, the, there's very little uh, ambiguous uh, or, or gray or c- complex nuanced space left on the intellectual map. It's all occupied in more tribal spots. So I think this is something that I've been thinking about and also writing about that as, as, as in some way, I'm, I'm happy that Ellie didn't have to live to see what we're going through right now. In another way, he would be an incredibly important voice because he has that moral authority. And also he had this ability to listen and to encourage other voices. He, you know, he talked to people, he, he, of all kinds of people. And we need to learn that we also can listen and encourage voices that we can graciously bend over backwards to be civil in our discourse. And this brings us back to the Holocaust. Yeah. And not at the cost, at the cost of conviction, right? Because here's a man that no one uh, would, everyone would associate with deep moral conviction. I mean, that, that graciousness, civility and understanding didn't, didn't come at any cost of moral passion or conviction for him. Yes. I think there's this misconception that if you listen to other people and you even search for some kind of common ground with them, that you are automatically, you know, betraying your values by listening, by, by allowing them to speak that you're giving them too much importance in the world. Um, and that's wrong. I think that it's incredibly important for people to be heard. And sometimes they have something important to say that you need to learn. For me, one of the guiding principles of Judaism, and I'm not like I'm not a, a highly religious person, is um, to learn from everyone. There is one passage in something called the Perkei Avot, which is like that the basically a wise person can learn from everyone. For me, I feel like I'm I'm curious about the world. I want to understand the world. I want to see what I can learn from everyone. And sometimes I'm surprised. And Ellie, to me, from what I my experience with him and from reading about him, was an incredibly curious person. And he wanted to speak, learn with, learn as well. And he spoke with all sorts of kinds of people. Um, he was fairly accessible in that in the world to speak to if you wanted to to talk to him. And that, and he did it graciously. And that graciousness is missing from our, our, our political, our social, perhaps even our religious cultures at the moment. And he, that's one of the lessons that I take away from him at this moment. There is a great reflection in the book about him by Michael Berenbaum, who was the founding project director of the U.S. Holocaust Museum. And he says that the language of Ellie's early books gave us all a new way to wrestle with God, to confront God, and to speak with the God of Auschwitz. Ellie showed us the abyss, but he never fell into it. Now, I found that 
those words incredibly powerful is here you have the, this person who you know in, in the night he says you know, i sees this young man in the gallows there where's god there's god in the gallows who has this complex spirituality yet very observant uh liturgically and yet didn't let that uh he, he didn't need to have a pristine kind of faith that didn't have room for unfaith and deep doubt and struggle. And I, that, that, I think that space and complexity is another place in our culture that I think many people would like to learn how to occupy <laughs> a space that was not, that, that was neither characterized by a kind of militant certainty or strident uh, disbelief in atheism, but something messier and deeper than that. Uh, to me, the heart, I mean, I mean, Ellie was someone who wrestled with God. I feel like, you know, at the heart of, of Judaism and at the heart of many, many, many faiths, I think really is questions, but certainly in Judaism. And the asking of questions to me is what's sacred. Um, there are very rarely a single answer. Very rarely is there a single answer to questions. I mean, and being able to live with the multiplicity of answers is an incredibly important space for us to be as humans, to be able to hold that not everyone feels the same. We may believe that we are right, but we need to hold that not everyone feels that way. Um, and this also brings us to, to leadership. What is leadership? I think about this a lot. And leadership is often to the ability to persuade and to help other people to understand how you view the world and how your vision of the world, which hopefully is based on a morality, a sense of morality that, uh, I mean, and that's something that, I mean, I guess, again, that transcends. And I feel like, of course, that's something that we're, we're missing at the moment and that we're in desperate need of. At the conclusion of the book, you have these words from Elie Wiesel at UN World Peace Day in New York City in 2006. He says, it's up to you now and we shall help you. We must ensure that my past does not become your future. And in some way, I think it's it's my hope that this book becomes a part of that, uh, of his hope there. I hope this book will be read by young people. I mean, people of all ages. I, I think in my mind that I, when I was doing it, I really wanted it to be for like an, a, a, a book that accompanies night for, for, for readers in high school, for readers in college, for people in their 20s. You're right. You mentioned it's like it is a beautiful gift book. It's a beautiful it could be a beautiful coffee table book. Um, and it's a book for all ages. But I think that that it's incredibly important for young people to be reading this book right now um and to understand when you, you read the book night you know you, you're reading about ellie as a child the voice is so incredibly powerful but he's a teenager and this book provides you i think a bigger glimpse of the man that was you asked me this question before when i first met ellie all i could see was the 13 14 15 year old in the book and it was really hard for me to make this jump from that to here was a man in his 70s that you know I was speaking to who was a real person <laughs> um and I think it's really important for us to make that not just to know Ellie as a 14 year old but to know him throughout his life and what he stood for and what he became because as as Michael Berenbaum says he he could he came close to falling into falling into the abyss and many survivors did but he he, he transcended that and 
took on the bigger world. Nadine, thanks for uh, for putting this book together and for spending some time talking with me about it. Thank you. Thank you so much. And you were so thoughtful about it as well. Thank you. <laughs> Pleasure was all mine. Thanks for listening to Give and Take. If you like what you heard, please do a couple things for me. They are so helpful if you do them. Share this interview on social media or via email or tag someone in a tweet or something and say, hey, this is great. Check it out. Spread the love and goodness if you found it here. Also, if you could go, please, 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 it takes like 60 seconds. Go to iTunes and write a review and give a, give a rating to the podcast. It really, really helps, especially as things are getting off the ground. And if you want to consider becoming a Patreon sponsor, you can just go right to the link on the podcast page, giveandtake.fireside.fm. You can find all the information there. Thanks to Nadine for coming on the podcast to check out her edited volume about Ellie Wiesel. You won't regret it. And thanks again to you for listening to Give and Take. Until next time, friends, fare thee well.